Louise Cooney's Open Book, a Go Loud original podcast. You're very welcome back to Open Book presented by Go Loud. I'm Louise Cooney and I'm so excited for this week's episode. We have the amazing, the hilarious Angela Scannon on. She is a presenter, she's a podcaster, she's a mother. She is a jewellery brand designer. She's got a lot going on and we just had a really nice, interesting conversation that I think you're really going to enjoy. She's really open and honest. And you know what? It's kind of a different conversation than I suppose you're used to hearing Angela have, I would say, because she's a funny girl. She's, you know, she's so outgoing, but we get kind of deep and it's a really interesting listen, even in comparison to our bonus episodes that we put out on Monday. So I really hope you enjoy it and thank you so much for coming back to Open Book. Well, you're very welcome, Angela. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Thanks, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming in. And you're very busy. You're back on our screens again with Ask Me Anything. Yes. How is everything going? It's good. It's wild. Um, in a good way. Like, I feel like guests are A, agreeing to come on the show, having seen other people, having seen episodes yes. of, of previous series. So they're coming with an open mind. Mm-hmm. And getting involved from the get-go, which yeah. is which is lovely, really. And there's a kind of trust. They're like, oh yeah, okay, I see what we're yes. doing now. Not a uh, fear, yes. which sometimes was the response. Oh, well, that's amazing. I'm delighted to hear yeah. that. I visited the set recently and yes, it's incredible. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it's very nice. Yeah, no, it's fab. Yeah. And you started out in fashion. You started out styling, which yeah. I can see today by your outfit. You're I mean, very into all of that. Yeah, all of that. How did you make the transition then into TV? Um, yeah, I like I studied business in the very Irish way of, you know, my parents weren't in fashion, obviously. Yeah. Well, maybe not, obviously. Some people's <laughs> parents are in fashion, yeah, I don't okay. know. Um, or media. So it was like, you know, my dad is builder. He had his own company. So there was that entrepreneurial kind of like do something for yourself, mm, work mm-hmm. for yourself was definitely there. But you know, it was like education, have something to fall back on. What are you going to do? And I was never going to go into a profession, like in the kind of tidy sense Mm. of being a nurse or a lawyer or whatever. And so I studied business thinking at the time that I would be like have my own fashion business. That's kind Mm -hmm. of what I thought. And then I worked in a boutique and I hated it. And so I got a number of like jobs that I really didn't enjoy in admin and data entry, which is not my Mm -hmm. strong suit. Mm -hmm. And then kind of accidentally in desperation, more in desperation than accidentally, to be fair, I, I got into fashion by a friend of mine, said that there was a space called The Loft in Powers Court Shopping Centre. And I was like, oh, maybe I could customise T-shirts. I mean, I couldn't, but I thought I would just really can't continue doing what I'm doing. I was so miserable. I was getting a mm. wage, but I just hated my job and my life. Totally. Yeah. And so I was like, it was, it was a lovely lesson because from the beginning I thought, oh, right, OK, I realise I'm not motivated by money or a wage packet or the security of money at the end of a month. And I'm saying that, that sounds like a very privileged position, but I just wasn't, um, wasn't driven by that. Like, I love money, don't get me wrong, but that was not the thing I realised that was going to make me happy. So anyway, sorry, this is a long-winded way of saying that I thought, oh, maybe I need to do something a bit more creative. And so... I started to explore this place called The Loft and was like, how do I get into that? And so I called lots of handbag designers in the UK and pretended I was an agent for small boutique brands and um, and went to London with like one of those big nana sacks and filled it with bags and then came back to The Loft and started selling them alongside jewellery that I had 
thrifted from charity shops mm. and started there and then from there somebody in the loft knew of somebody who was a personal shopper in Dundrum who needed an assistant I was like yeah I'll take that and started doing that realised that styling was an actual job and uh, and started pitching for editorial stuff and writing about fashion and yeah and then so I had kind of like quite a steady career in that producing bits for telly at Mm. the time And, you know, going to expose and saying, okay, I can book two models and I can on my lunch break, personal shopping in Dundrum, nip into Oasis and pull together a party dress that looks like something Mm -hmm. Drew Barrymore wore in Cannes last week and we can make a segment out of it. So I was producing and I was pitching and then realised, oh, telly is quite exciting. And so from there kind of made quite a conscious decision that that's what I wanted to do. And so from that point on just started pitching ideas aimlessly and relentlessly to people who I shouldn't have pitched ideas to but I kind of didn't know the rules of the game so I did. That's funny that you say that we had Greg O'Shea on the podcast recently and he said when he wanted to get into TV he just had to be bold and he had to go after the people that you know he said himself they probably were like what's your man doing like what's he asking for here yeah And I find that really interesting, like when you know you want something and you're really passionate about it, you have to be bold. Well, I think it's knowing what you want, 100% passion, but also like a kind of blind ignorance, Mm. truthfully, Mm -hmm. that you're fearless because you don't know. You haven't experienced rejection where you haven't been kind of like slapped back into shape by Mm. these kind of rules that somebody else has made but you have to play by. Did you know you could do it? Yeah. I did uh, expose styling for a bit as well. Yeah. Uh, I was still working full time with Tourism Ireland at the time in marketing. God, what year was that? That was probably like 2016. So what's that, seven years ago? Yeah. And I remember. not that far (laughs) apart. But how did you look? Um, I I wasn't like, I mean, I probably didn't love it because it it didn't come that naturally to me. Okay, You know, like I was so nervous and I remember like just the detail you had to know about things. Yeah. Um, I remember Lisa Cannon was presenting the first one and she was to me like so scary at the time. And like, I mean, Lisa was to me as well because she's like, her energy is big and she comes yeah. in and she's, she's, she's boss. business. Yeah, yeah. She's, yeah, amazing. And I was out of my depth, like, you know, and I was doing it for a jewellery brand, but I didn't know what everything was made of or like, you know, all, all the detail that yeah. comes with jewellery. And I know you have a jewellery brand as well, Freckle, which we'll talk yeah. about later. But I did not know all these details and I was like, what am I doing? Oh my it's God. Gold. What else do you want me to say? <laughs> it goes really nicely with this outfit, like you know. And I yeah. bought all the clothes from Zara. I remember. Oh my god! But that's like a again, there's a, a a willingness. Like that's not you didn't know the rules. Buying the clothes from Zara, you didn't have to do. But you're like, okay, I'll do whatever I need to do. Mm-hmm. And I think you need to have that appetite. Needs to be there and the willingness to like try anything to try and yeah. to, to fail. And also, you know, you said, oh, it, it didn't come naturally. I felt nervous. Like I, I think sometimes. And I've been at risk of this, of going, oh, it feels really hard, therefore it mustn't be my Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is total bullshit. Because that sense of being out of your comfort zone, of being, yeah, of being frightened, I suppose, Mm. in the doing of the thing is okay. It's not proof that you shouldn't have done it. It's proof that you're you're doing it. Do you believe in the phrase, fake it till you make it? A hundred percent. Yeah. And it's funny because I always think, and this comes up time and time again, this idea that women, and I'm like super passionate about this, women wait 
until they're ready, ready for the job. And men consistently and historically go, yeah, 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 I can do it. And mm. they figure out how to do it. And I don't believe we, and I mean, as humans are ready. Like, how can you be ready for a job that you've never done? You can't. Mm. The only way you can prepare for a job is by doing the job. Well, I mean, that's my experience. I don't yeah, think no, you can right. sit at home and go like study loads of things. Maybe some people do that. I'm like, the only way I can get good at something is by doing something. And so I think we as women have to be bolder in saying, yeah, I can do it. Mm-hmm. And knowing somehow you'll figure it out. Yeah. The school of life is better than any like course you'll do 100%. or, you know, and getting that experience. Yeah. But just touching on what you're, you know, saying that men would, they go in and they own it, even if they don't. Yeah. Even and not don't everyone now, it. not everyone, but just in general, in comparison to women. I think that's like, you know, scient- yeah. like lots of research suggests that men overestimate their ability to do things and women consistent. Oh, yeah. So like I, I have a friend who works in a male dominated office and yeah. she would say that they'll put themselves forward for jobs they're not ready for, you know, whereas she's she like won't. the last person. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then yeah. she got a approached about this job because she would never have put herself forward and she got it. Yeah. So I was yes. like, yes, yeah. yeah. Um, but speaking about, you know, women versus men versus, yeah. you know, just on that topic, I have to ask you about the Late Late Show because I know there's a lot of call, like so people are calling the- for it to be a woman. OK, and obviously Ryan, when he said, I hope whoever gets the job, I wish her the best. Yes. Job, OK, right? so the, he set up that conversation, well, which he- I, I admire him for. A hundred percent. But I mean, it's like throwing a grenade into the mix. And it's kind of, I mean, look, I would love it to be a woman. Mm. Just in the same way, I'm really glad I'm doing the show on Saturday night and not another lad, which yeah. is what it's been. Yeah. But like, I like to think that the reason that I have asked me anything is not because I wear a skirt well. Yeah. And it's not a quota or a box ticking exercise. I think I'm I'm good at my job. And I think the person who takes over that needs to be ready Mm. for that job not because of their gender because the problem is I suppose if they if somebody goes in and gets the job because they're a woman and either isn't right for the job from their point of view or from the Mm -hmm, show's perspective mm -hmm. and it doesn't land it's quite unforgiving unfortunately and it's unfair nearly on the person well you know I'm sure the people making that decision but like women aren't allowed to fail Mm -hmm. as regularly as men do you feel that in your your, on your show that you get more scrutiny than you actually I feel I don't know whether it's because I I dip in and out or because the show is quite free and while I don't know I don't feel um I don't feel like I'm under a lot of scrutiny. I, don't, I mean, I'm not on Twitter, so I uh, maybe okay, I, I was going to ask you that. Do you read? Because I like, no. I, I just know that people tweet away whatever their every thought and it's a cesspit. Exactly. And, and, you know, most people don't go, oh, wasn't that lovely? They go, that was a pile of shite, yeah, whatever it okay. is. You generally, you don't necessarily go on TripAdvisor to say I had a lovely brunch. No, you don't. You go yeah. to say I found a cockroach in my yeah. croc mazur or whatever. So I think it's harder to get it wrong if you're a woman. Harder to... I think it's harder when you get it wrong. When you get it wrong. Or when someone believes you get it wrong. And I remember reading an an article that Sharon Horgan wrote and she's like, because obviously it was like, oh, women in comedy, we have a woman's comedy show. Mm -hmm. Right. And then suddenly a realisation with Fleabag and with Catastrophe and with all these female written, female centred kind of comedy shows that have universal appeal, not just appeal to a pink woman. Yes. But what she said was, you don't, we shouldn't just get the opportunity to do these things. Mm. We should get the opportunity to do these things, maybe not brilliantly, Mm -hmm. because there's an expectation that if a woman is given a chance, she better smash it. There's so much riding on that woman 
paving the way. And yes. if she gets it wrong, then it's messed up for okay, the rest yeah, of us. Yeah, yeah. And so I think usually the best things that we've seen on telly or in any forum are the product of multiple you know, things along the way that mm-hmm. didn't go so well, that you learned a massive amount from and you were given the grace to move to the next stage mm-hmm. and to hone whatever it is that mm-hmm. you do and, and improve along the way. And yeah. I think, yeah, historically men, failure is kind of fabulous in a man. It's like part of their story. It's the MBA on the way. And mm-hmm. I love all of that. But like for women, you get your shot now, don't mess it up. Mm. You know? Yeah. We're getting better, but I think we've got a way to go. Yeah. No, I think we are. And I think it's all about how we frame it as well. And yeah. Owning our own failures and being like, you know, that was that was my MBA yeah. and that, you know. And and also being proud of it. And back to that thing of putting yourself forward, not being afraid. You don't have to get everything right. Yeah. 100%. You know, it's like, yeah. 100%. And we were chatting before we started recording about how you are coming over back at the moment from yeah. London. You live, London's your base. It's where your kitties are, it's where your husband yeah. is. Do you think you'd ever move home full time? <laughs> it's, always, it's always the question, isn't it? I don't know. Like, I feel like I'm here a lot, you know? Yeah, you are, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm literally here every week. Um, but for now, you know, Ruby's in school over there now. Yeah, okay, which like, makes it more tricky. Yeah. Well, yeah, it kind of felt like a commitment at the time. Um, never say never. How long are you over there now? Ten years. Wow. Yeah. Is it home now? Is it? Like, I still say I'm going home next yeah, week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I'm t- coming here rather than mm-hmm. there. So I'm kind of foot in both camps, I suppose. I was listening to a podcast you did with Georgie Crawford. Yeah, love her. Um, who was a guest on our podcast as well. And you spoke about how you can be in a big city like London and feel unseen. Mm-hmm. You know, you can be surrounded by people, but you could go for weeks feeling unseen, you know, yeah. because you have to arrange to meet people because everywhere's so far and everyone's so busy. Yeah. I lived in New York for a while. And I totally relate to mm-hmm. that. Like, I totally understand how that feels. Do you think with time you've you've settled in more over there? And Yeah. And, and also I've kind of, I suppose, previously that... Um, I don't know, I suppose I just felt quite overwhelmed, truthfully, by London, which was quite at odds with the version of myself in my head. Like, you know, I think I'm quite a country girl. You're <laughs> from Ratho, right? Yeah, yeah. Mead. But like, you know, my dad's from Mayo, my mom's from Galway. Like, I've, you know, I feel very, in my bones, I feel like I'm a culture, you know. Yeah. But I think I fought quite hard for a long time to be quite cosmopolitan as if they couldn't exist as if I couldn't do big things if I was attached to that aspect of myself maybe and I think when I went away because I lived in New York as well for a while and um I was like shit mm. I thought I'd be like Carrie Bradshaw and mm-hmm. it wasn't and it, sometimes it looks like that yeah. you know but it just yeah. doesn't maybe but it's there, there was an ease that I didn't really feel and that I didn't feel in London. And I I suppose my personality is that when I don't feel an ease, I need to continue to lean in that direction until I am at ease with whatever really? discomfort is. Yeah. And I don't know whether that's good or bad, but it's like, a, you know, like an itch I have to scratch, something I have to conquer. So anything that frightens the living daylights out of me is something I tend to move towards instead of away from. Wow. Yeah, that's, I mean, I know what you mean. It is, it's good in a sense that you're going to really like push yourself, but yeah. also you got to be careful about how much you push yourself. A hundred percent. And I think it's knowing when to kind of handle yourself with a bit of tenderness as opposed mm-hmm. to always run into the fire. Yeah. You know. So you've two small kids now. I know yeah. one of your girls is in school now mm-hmm. and your baby is what? She's yeah, just 14, 14 months. months. 
How do you find balancing that with work and with having such a busy, demanding job? Um, tough. Yeah. You know, when I did suppose- you let yourself kind of go back to work? Oh, I went back. So my book, Joyrider, came out in May. She was born in... February. Okay, okay. And so I knew at the time and we had pushed the release date back. It was Mm -hmm. supposed to come out in, I think it was due to come out in January of that year. And I was like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that's possible. And so we moved it out to May and I thought, you know what, I'll do like a six days of, you know, promo or whatever Mm -hmm. else and then go back to maternity. And it kind of worked and it kind of didn't because... You know, technically, it's never six days, is it? And there's the anxiety of launching Mm. a first book, which for me was deeply personal. And I felt really exposed. And, you know, speaking of tenderness, post-motherhood, I was super... Hormonal, I'm sure. Yeah, All of it. Hormonal and vulnerable. And, you know, I loved it. Like, I really did in a way that I found much more challenging first time around. I kind of was able to lean into the slowness of it all because I guess I had done a lot of work in the four years in between to balance things a bit more. Mm -hmm. Because I think when I had Ruby, I was, you know, speaking of running into the fire, I kind of was consistently in that space where I was always going, going, going. So it, it felt like I had just landed and anything I had been running away from was suddenly there. So it kind of coincided. And I think in, at the time I... um. I suppose I connected it purely to motherhood, but it it was much bigger. It was more the timing and stuff. It was the timing and it was stuff that I had kind of, you know, been aware of, but had ignored for a really long time. And there was kind of no more Mm. running away from it. It was this time around, I very actively was like, I need support. I'm going to like reduce all of the expectations I have on myself. I'm going to like I did a home birth second time around, which was so incredible actually really yeah yeah and it's weird because here everyone's like and in the run-up I was like I'm having the baby at home they were like that's brave that's mad and it felt oh it was so lovely and you had a midwife there with you yeah midwife yeah midwife had the fire on I'd like a pool in the living room and candles and it was relaxing it's lovely like it was amazing I mean hardcore obviously yeah but it felt kind of safe and it felt personal to Mm -hmm. me and I think sometimes the issue with my first birth although in textbook it was a great birth it was like quick and there was no complications and all of the stuff it was I felt so out of control and and really quite frightened. And so this time around, I was like, okay, this, I feel like I roared like a wild woman. And it was <laughs> very empowering yeah. in a way that I just didn't know and had read about and heard. And I'd really hoped that I could experience at one point, but I had my first birth, like the actual labour. Sorry, you didn't ask this question, but I'm going <laughs> for it. I felt, re- I felt like a giant lost baby giving birth. I was like, I was mute. I was terrified. And did you feel like that, like throughout your pregnancy or it was just something? No, but I did feel, I felt kind of in denial about the whole thing. Okay, yeah, yeah. I felt very much like, um, and I think it was maybe where I was in my career as well, that I needed to make sure people knew I was still available. Don't worry about me. Mm-hmm. Don't count me out because I'm pregnant. I need to show you nothing has changed. Yeah. I'm still in the race. Whereas this time around, I was like, 
I don't know that I want to be in the race anymore. Mm-hmm. Or at least maybe I can sit on the bench for a little while and they it's probably going to be fine. Yeah, I think when you're bringing that version of yourself, like if you're bringing an exhausted, anxious version of yourself, yeah. you are better off sitting on the bench and giving yourself that time to recover and get back to yourself. And And also to like nourish and nurture yourself. And I'm like, I really want to do telly around. If I didn't do telly, I would love to be a midwife or a doula or something around like maternal health, either in pre or post. And it's, I do feel like historically in this country, we're not great at it. And the idea, I remember feeling so horrified that women had to go through labour on their own during during COVID. COVID. And there was people doing all sorts, you know, that they shouldn't have been doing if we were all playing by the same rules, except women, again, were these kind of voiceless, forgotten people doing the biggest frigging job on their own in really scary circumstances. And so it was, it's infuriating. And I think there's a kind of like real anger and sense of wanting to, to kind of write that for Irish women. I think we feel like... Hello? Are you... Yeah. No, I know. I understand that, yeah. And I think hearing you say that now, God, like, that's so hard. That's horrendous. And all the scans and everything. Like, such an important part, isn't it? Like, And it's such a... Like, you know, we talk about birth and when we think of birth, we think of, you know, birthing and Mm -hmm. labour and the baby. And of course, that's the, you know, that's the gig. But I think the mother is very often forgotten. You speak about you know, kind of struggling after your first baby. Yeah. Did it inspire you to to write Joyrider? Yeah. It did? Yeah. Well, I think it inspired me to make changes in my life that led me to a point where I thought there was something worth Yeah, because it's kind of self-help and it's kind of biography. Yeah. What were those changes? I mean, like, I've kind of said that I was running away from things for a really long time and I... (laughs) I suppose when I kind of zoom out, truthfully, I knew that I needed to address things and look after myself. And possibly I didn't love or like myself enough to stop and to make those changes. And when my daughter came along, she was a reason, I suppose, Mm. for me to go, I don't want her to have this version of me. Mm. I know that there's a better version and that she deserves better. And so she became the kind of catalyst, I suppose, for all of that. And for me digging and going deeper and exploring why I felt so grossly lonely and Mm -hmm. inadequate and relentlessly critical of myself, no matter what I did. And I think, truthfully, it was when she arrived that I kind of got in touch with the tiny version of myself or the child version of myself that I had totally abandoned, really. And I started to become a little bit more compassionate for myself. Isn't it amazing like that sometimes it takes you having to do that for somebody else in order for you to actually do it for yourself? Totally. But the truth is, I don't think you can properly do it for anybody else until you do it for yourself. Yeah. And so this idea of, you know, when everyone talks about filling or pouring from an empty cup and all of those things, and I think we're getting better. But again, historically, the model that we've been given in this country particularly is the woman's job is to literally give everything, everything of her body, all of her time, all of her resources, all of her identity, everything gets poured into children or family. And 
how does that work when you have a career then that you but really also want to keep do, going as Whether well? you have a career or not, a woman's identity and value should never be just her ability to nurture. That's a beautiful, massive part of what we give as, as mothers. But I think it's so problematic. And I think it's why women feel invisible and feel unseen because their worth is tied to how much they give. And if they run out of things to give, then their worth is is gone. And that's, it's not true, I suppose. Yeah, I think in the, the time that we're living in now, I would hope and say, like, I know my relationship with my partner and I like I'm sure you're the same. I can ask for help if I need yeah. it, you know. Yeah. And I know my friends who say have had new babies and stuff. I would hate to think that everything is left to them. I do think that's changing now, you know, way totally. more than it was 20 years, 30, 40 years ago, yeah. you know. Yeah, but then there's the whole emotional labour thing. And I listened to podcasts the other day and they were still saying like 70 to 30% of that emotional labour of, have we got a present for that little fellow's birthday? Oh God, yeah, I know, yeah. We're or just... who's organising brunch next week? And <laughs> have you got your mother a present for Mother's Day like all of those kind of things those things haven't really changed not in my world (laughs) but but also I do think and I remember reading Sheryl Sandberg's lean in which you know wild applause initially and then you're like "Mm, okay I don't think the tales of her you know leadership within Google suggest that maybe it wasn't all women but like I think it was important at the time and groundbreaking at the time but her whole thing was if women are to be equal and given 50% then we also need to allow for men to step up and do that you give that 50% as well in another role that we have haven't really seen like I think our generation is creating a new template and that's really hard because you know we've seen modeling and like obviously this is not relevant to everybody but generally the mother being the caretaker, the homemaker mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the father being the provider. And so on the one hand, we as women want freedom to be able to work, which is only sustainable if there's the support with home life. But then I know there's a lot of women who are like, I don't want to earn more than my husband, do I? Mm-hmm. They've never seen that. And that feels, you know, or it's like still deemed to be emasculating if a man decides to stay at home because his woman is the... Mm, I- you know, I met um, a couple recently who were due a baby and the man worked for a tech company. And I think a lot of the tech companies are really forward thinking and te- paternal leave. And all oh, my God. Six yeah. months fully paid. That's unbelievable. And in she, Ireland. In Ireland. And she only got three months fully paid, three months half paid. I was like, what? Yeah. But I mean, at the same time, doesn't it show a changing Ireland? Yeah. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. it's not fair. Like, you know, but, yeah. but yeah. like that. Yeah. And that's a whole... Yeah, it's a whole other issue. And then the going back to the cost of childcare, mm. something that's not really spoken about. And it's like, yeah, it's very difficult to justify getting up, going to work every day to literally cover I your know. costs. Unless you get such a sense of yourself and purpose out of it, which exactly I know that, that you do. Exactly. That. And I do as well. You yeah. know, you've described yourself as a workaholic in the past. Do you yeah. think it's due to the nature of your job or is no. it? Is, yeah. Due to the nature of myself. Self. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah and, lo- and I don't want to be flippant about it because I actually think it's really like it's not ideal. Like I think it's really socially acceptable addiction. Mm. truth of it and it's you know you're applauded and you're rewarded financially and socially and mm-hmm. all of those things. Yeah. Um, but it it has costs, you know, so yeah. I think I have got to work really hard. I don't mean actually work really hard, but to consciously, you know, pull back. And I'm, it's, it's really tricky because you're still 
in the zone of make hay while the sun shines and there's 10 people waiting outside to get up on that stage Mm -hmm. and it won't last forever and all of those Mm, things that bubble quietly in the background that there is a truth to Mm -hmm. in this industry. But it's just making sure that you're not driven by all of those external voices to the point where you wake up in 10 years time and like you've missed mm-hmm. yeah that it hasn't come at the expense of your mental health and I think and also your relationships your relationships your kids memories and your marriage yeah. and your family and all of the things that really matter are important you yeah. know and that's not like I love my job I feel really privileged to do a job that I I really enjoy and that I feel hopefully inspires people to do things mm-hmm. whatever yeah. but I think sometimes when you do those big things and they have been to the detriment of other things, they feel really hollow. And so it's consistently reminding myself that actually they're only good when there's some sort of Mm -hmm. semblance of balance and fulfilment in the real like life stuff. No, that's so true. I totally, totally agree with you. I have one last question. Go on. (laughs) (laughs) You're obviously still very interested in fashion. Yes, I am. If our listeners could see what you're wearing. I mean, I don't know. I look like I'm dressed like your dad in the 90s. No, I love it. That's very, love it. Or the 80s, I don't know. You've launched a fashion brand, sorry, a a jewellery brand, Freckle. Yes. Does that feel like you've come full circle a bit going back into fashion, essentially, after doing and still doing everything you're doing in TV? Yeah, I suppose it does a bit. And it's funny, even when you mention expose and you're like, I was doing a jewellery brand. Like, it's definitely, you know, it's always been a passion of mine. And even the stuff in the loft, I was selling handbags and jewellery. Yeah. And it was never, you know, when I got into telly, I was quite happy to do that. And it kind of, I suppose, creatively, I felt like telly is a long old process, you know, Mm. you can pitch a show that may or may not make it onto the air for years. Mm -hmm. And I suppose I just kind of felt like I wanted to do something where I could see things move a bit more. Take the control back. Yeah, and create something. And even, I suppose, for my girls to be able to kind of, you know, they come to shoots and they see me building something that lives outside of myself being on stage. Yeah doing my thing. And so I, yeah, I, I am really excited about what we're doing there and like lots of, lots of plans and, and big ambitions because that seems to be the only thing I can yeah. do. Which <laughs> is problematic in itself, but like, it's fine. No, you're I'm doing, starting to lean into it. You're doing amazing things and your show Ask you Me any, Anything is going amazingly. You've got some amazing guests lined up. Yeah. And I'm so excited for you. I can't wait to watch the rest of the season. Thank you. Uh, and thanks, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for giving your time today because I know you're so busy. I feel like I was very serious. I'm sorry. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. It's, so it's called very Open Book. Deep. We delve into, yeah. into deep conversations. It's you know, good. that's what we do here. You know? yeah. Thank you for that. <laughs> okay, that's us for this week. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. I thought it was really thought provoking and she's just such an interesting person. So hope you enjoyed and got something from it and we'll be back on Monday with our bonus episode and our next guest so thank you so much again for listening don't forget to subscribe to share to spread the word about Open Book and I will see you next week